0: Chat, A bi-weekly discussion of hottest topics in Central Asia with your hosts Alisher Hamidov, journalist based in Bishkek, And Igerim
1: Triukhadema, a journalist from Kazakhstan. So, Aigerim, this week we will start with updating our listeners about recent attacks on journalists in Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan and generally about the situation with the freedom of the press. Then we will talk about the influence of Russian propaganda in the region. Then we have a topic on uh, McDonald's, uh, business that is struggling in the region. So, and then we will also have a special interview conducted by our editor, Peter Leonard, with Joanna Lillis, a Eurasian contributor, on the situation in Karakal, Pakistan, following the uh, trials of protesters in that uh, uh, autonomous province of Uzbekistan.
0: And actually, I wanted to start with Kazakhstan because this January, it's been already at least five attacks on journalists and 90% of them female journalists. So all these attacks were happening in the period of two, three days in a row. And some experts believe that this has a coordinated character of all these attacks we still don't know who is attacking the journalists. The police found some teenagers who said that they took the order online. The real person who ordered these attacks is still unknown. It seems like in
1: Kazakhstan, uh, the situation has gotten really worse compared to last year. Is that the case?
0: It's definitely a scarier environment and such Types of attacks were happening in 2000s, you know, when the media outlets were uh, being sent like a dead uh, head of some animal with some blood. And, uh, you know, just recently in October, well-known journalist Gulnara Bashkenova has received pig's head with her torn photos as well. My God. So it's definitely a scary situation when you receive such gifts. But I think that it's also happening in Kyrgyzstan, unfortunately, right? Because Kyrgyzstan was used to be more democratic, and now we hear uh, that there are some uh, trials with Radio Azat. Can you update us about the latest news?
1: Yeah, Kyrgyzstan is not a country which is friendly to journalists. Uh, At least this is uh, the view of uh, many journalists here in Bishkek, including mine, and so. Now, the Kyrgyz authorities have launched this investigation into Azatik and its activities. And trial has uh, begun um, to close down uh, Azatik's uh, offices uh, in Bishkek, generally its activities. So Azatik is uh, suing back. Uh, they believe that the Kyrgyz government has wrongfully acted to close down its website. And so uh, there's a lot of discussion now in, in, in the public as well. There are fears that after Azatik, there will be other uh, media outlets that will come under attacks, and mo- most likely, critical newspapers and uh, websites will close down. That's the situation I'm in.
0: I've been thinking that the state of journalism in Kazakhstan, in Kyrgyzstan and other Central Asian countries is very fragile. And there is no proper foundation or institution of journalism of trust to journalists. For example, in in my case, I just noticed how all of my relatives, they have open free access to all the Russian TV. And especially those relatives that live closer to Russian border, they consume completely different information. And I think it's playing a big role now amid the invasion into Ukraine, into how Central Asian citizens form a picture of what's going on in the world. What do you think about it?
1: I think that you're right. There's this general trend. Uh, there are attacks now on Western-affiliated media outlets all across the region, particularly in Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan. Generally, we see this uh, rise in Russian propaganda and its influence in the region. So As these Western-backed media outlets, they are being shut down, the influence of Russian propaganda machine is is growing. Is that the trend in the region, do you think?
0: To me, it seems that it's very complicated in Kazakhstan from what I noticed because the society is quite multi-ethnic. It's not just ethnic Kazakhs that live in Kazakhstan. There are plenty of uh, Russians, Ukrainians, Germans, Koreans, Chechens, Ingush people, Tatar people, you know they all consume different types of media, different type of information. Some of them they watch Russian TV and they have this view of let's say Russian uh, state that it's the war that they're doing now is justified. And uh, after the invasion I was shocked to learn that some of my like acquaintances they supported the invasion they actually have been watching Russian TV all this time. What about well, you? Do you have some kind of uh, experience like this? In
1: Kyrgyzstan, I go to this uh, Russian banya every week on Thursdays. Uh, and usually Thursdays are for retired people because it's cheaper. Before the Russian invasion, I would go to the steam room to soak and eavesdrop on conversation among these elderly people. And they all spoke favorably about Putin, Russia, Russian influence, policies. But after the war in Ukraine, I think that even in that banya, uh, conversations have become more critical of Russia and Putin personally. It seems like uh, Putin's propagandists, uh, they are losing steam, generally with the war and with uh, the direction of, of Russia. So, for example, some of these people in the the sauna, they are saying, look, if if Putin can do that to Ukraine, he he will do it to Kyrgyzstan. So majority of those people who are critical are Kyrgyz people. They're not Russian speakers. But still, uh, I think that generally there is this criticism, more critical views uh, of Putin personally. I don't know if, if it's a healthy trend, but but I think that people are starting to ask. And there I think there are limits to Russian propaganda machine. People have common sense. They can see. They can they can see how uh Russian propagandists are lying to them. So uh we see some healthy trends in Kyrgyzstan, I agree.
0: I'm afraid it's not the case in Kazakhstan because when I talk to people in Kazakhstan, it's it's hard to make a certain conclusion because usually there is a culture that we don't talk about politics among friends. But there is this awkwardness because, for example, some of my ethnic Russian friends, their parents have moved to Russia amid this war and there is this awkward silence like, why did they do that? Do they support the war? And then I ask my friends like, so are you also planning to move to Russia? And they're like, of course, no. Um, My home is Kazakhstan. I don't know what my parents are doing. So it's like, Really generational thing, I think, because these parents, they probably have nostalgia about Soviet Union. And also some of the people that I've talked to, they have a very strong nostalgia about Soviet Union. They say that they're proud to be born in Soviet Union and that Putin is now kind of restoring the historical injustice. And you know, it became even more public in Kazakhstan because recently, one, let's say, opposition, but it's not really opposition, deputy of parliament, Azamat Abildaev. He openly supported Putin and in, uh, invasion. And after that, he was expelled from his party, Akhzol. And I'm not really sure how many people actually think this way. I also wanted to share a personal story.
1: I have a few friends in my town who have been very much anti-Western and pro-Russian. But after the war in Ukraine, their opinions have changed. Uh, I have a friend, Shamil is his name. He is ethnic Azerbaijani, but he was married to a Ukrainian national. So uh, he he and his wife separated, and he now lives in Kyrgyzstan. He thought that I was an American spy because I studied in America and all that. So he was always like making fun of me that hey you you American you work for CIA. But after the war in Ukraine, Shamil has changed. Uh, he's become more critical of Putin and, and, and his war in, in Ukraine. And he recently asked me to tell my uh, CIA superiors to ship more weapons to Ukraine. So even Shamil has changed.
0: And we have a special episode with Joanna Lilis, a Eurasian correspondent who, in December, Uh, went to Uzbekistan and herself witnessed the trial of uh, some of the Karakalpak activists in Bukhara. And she shares her personal experience and observations in an interview with our Central Asia editor, Peter Leonard.
2: On November 28th, 22 people went on trial in the city of Bukhara, Uzbekistan on various charges related to massive unrest that broke out in the Autonomous Republic of Karakalpakstan in the west of the country, in early July last year. The trial began without any advance warning other than for a handful of reporters, and now, just two months later, the court is poised to give its verdict. The names of the defendant have been made public, only... Two among them, though, have a public profile. One is Dowlet Murat Tejimuratov, he's the lawyer and blogger who prosecutors claim orchestrated the unrest, and the other is Lola Gul Kalihanova, a blogger who has also been identified by investigators as a ringleader. The case that the state is making against these two is that they hatched and executed a plan, possibly with assistance from co-conspirators based outside the country, to first whip up violent unrest, and then, on the back of that chaos, to seek to push for the breakaway of Karakalpakstan from the rest of Uzbekistan. So, Joanna, you were present at a few hearings in December in Bukhara. Could you share your impressions?
3: Um, certainly, yes. I attended um, three days of hearings in Bukhara in late December. Now, and there were several striking things that I observed during that trial. One of the things is the manner in which the state, the Authorities are absolutely determined to present this as an absolute um, model of open and transparent um, justice, worthy of the new Uzbekistan that President Shavkat Mizoy says he's building and has been building. You know, since he came to power as a reforming president in 2016. Um, how are they doing that? Well, I mean, one obvious answer is that they let me, a foreign journalist, into the courtroom. You know, without any quibbling or anything like that. So the court is, in fact. Open, although there's been a lot of concern about the fact that um, a live feed was switched off for many, many days, many weeks even. Um, So only people who are sitting in the courtroom in Bukhara were able to find out what was happening, really. Another point about this um, attempt by the government to show how open it is and how this trial is fair. You know, I think when I was in court, it seemed to me that the letter of the law, the criminal procedural law, which governs how trials are run, is being followed you know i mean for example i think the best example i can give of that is that dawlet murat Muratov who is alleged by the prosecutors to be the ringleader of this alleged separatist plot you know he he challenged almost every piece of, almost every witness, uh, uh, let me say. You know, over the three days I was in court, uh, almost every witness, and I I witnessed about 70 uh, people being questioned, and he would get up and challenge them, sometimes at great length. The judge made no attempt to silence him, despite um, his challenging being certainly detrimental to the prosecution case. Certainly, he was basically, you know, ripping it apart at times. And an example I can give of that is the fact that he got a witness to break down on the witness stand and admit that she had given false testimony, lying to say that protesters had been paid to go out onto the streets in Nukas in July. So that's one of the points, really. And the other striking thing is that it's very much Daulat Morat, Moratov against not just the court, the prosecution, the prosecution rather than the court, of course, uh, but also it's a sort of 21 defendants against him. I mean, the other defendants have all pleaded guilty to, to one degree or another of the charges against them, but he's pleading innocent of all charges. And, um, you know, it's also very much their kind of, throwing the blame on him. And there's a, obviously a te- some tensions in that dock. I mean, he sits in the corner, he doesn't look at them, they don't look at him. And at one point, one of the defendants um, asked the judge to stop him challenging all this testimony. It's taking hours, it's dragging the trial. And the judge said, no, he has the right. The,
2: the picture we get is of quite, sometimes quite chaotic proceedings in the courtroom. The hearings, incidentally, I think is worth noting, are being carried out in Karakalpak. And so, what you would expect from a courtroom which is doing its job properly is, is quite lively, forwards and backwards, and so the evidence is being tested to a destruction point. Nevertheless, um, as you say, there's a really strange situation and that although there's 22 people in the dock, essentially almost all of them more or less admit their guilt. Uh, it's not really that clear under what circumstances they were brought to the point of admitting their guilt. Given that we have this quite lively, chaotic picture. Do you come away from this trial feeling like this is a fair process? And what are critics of the whole trial saying about it?
3: You know, first of all, the question of how lively it is. It's lively when Daulat Muratov, or at least when I was there, was lively when he was getting up and challenging testimony and there were often some kind of testy exchanges and at some point shouting. But a lot of the time it's very much grinding along and um, none of the defenders, other defenders, spoke hardly at all. And uh, I thought that the defence lawyers, such as they were, were not very active either. Now, another point, I think, about the fairness of the trial, I think rather than say what I think, I'd like to point to a, a very busy, spectacle that happened um, when I was in the court when MPs who attended in the morning one day as members of a, a commission that sort of set up and observing the trial, which we'll get to later. And um, the, the defenders, 21 of the defenders, of course not um, Tajimuratov, took it upon themselves to jump up in unison as if they were sort of army recruits rather than defendants in a court of law and then beg forgiveness in unison. Sort of they jumped up as one and begged, begged forgiveness of the state. Now that implies something quite strange about the trial, something quite concerning about, you know, it's the court that's supposed to decide whether they're guilty or not. And it seems to me that they believe that there's going to be a political decision. How else should we interpret that? And also, as for the critics of the fairness of the trial, I think Human Rights Watch summed it up um, pretty well in a statement they made when the trial started. I mean, they pointed to some of the problems that, that you've mentioned, including the lack of notice for people to actually get, journalists, I mean, human rights campaigners and so on, to actually get there for the open because the notice was so short, I mean hours. Um, so it's it's a very convoluted um situation. And there are a lot of concerns about the fairness of this trial.
2: So I mean there's another strand to all this, which is that immediately after the the violence subsided. The government, in order to show that it was uh, taking a very different tack from what it was doing in 2005 after the events in Andijan that year, in which hundreds of people are believed to have been killed by the army coming in and repressing protests, uh, they decided to institute this uh, independent so-called independent commission to investigate the causes of the unrest and also to monitor the, the follow-up investigations and, and the incarceration of sus- suspects in the trial and so on. So you actually alluded to this, that mem- there were members of this independent commission uh, present at the trial and um, the days that you were attending. I mean, this is something that I've Looked into myself, and I was in uh, uh a few months ago to look into exactly what it was that this commission was doing. My own uh, conclusions, on the basis of that reporting, was that the commission is definitely you know, a novelty. It's not the sort of thing that Uzbekistan has seen before, but it is striking in the kind of questions that it's not asking, and that it's extremely uncurious about many aspects of this uh, of this whole saga. Uh, one thing that really struck me, for instance, was that when I quizzed several people who were on this commission about how many people had been arrested, very simple question you would think uh, uh, as a result of these events in July, none of them were able to say how many people w- were in prison at that particular time, uh, facing charges uh, connected to what happened in Karakalpakistan. As to all the other details, some things they were able to answer, some things they weren't. You know, generally it was a pretty mixed picture, but the overall impression is that certainly that I came away with was that this was something of a cosmetic exercise and trying to appear to be uh, very sort of uh, rigorous. I was wondering if you, if you could just share a little bit, very briefly, what the commission members who you saw at the trial were saying, what kind of observations they were making, and what sort of influence you think that they had on the conduct of the trial.
3: Yeah, I spoke to um, Faruza Shmatova, who's the ombudswoman and chairs this commission. Uh, I put it to her that the commission that's called an independent commission is not, in the view of critics, actually independent and that it's very close to the the government or, and that it it doesn't seem to be robustly challenging, as you say, or posing some questions that one would expect. She, you know, she was very insistent that the commission is independent. They're not receiving direction from any, from the government. She was, you know, keen to impress upon me that they had done important things for the defendants I mean including you know getting some of the defenders not particularly in this trial but um, some people released sort of on bail while they await trial when they had been in detention centres but also she was very keen to impress upon me that this is an independent commission you know the fact for example that, that some MPs are included now one would expect that in most countries but let's face it Uzbekistan's parliament is a rubber stamp parliament that does the bidding of the government so I think that kind of thing makes people kind of wear there's no doubt um, there are independent figures on the commission. I mean, there is Azam Farmonov, who's a human rights activist who spent a decade in Jasslik, uh, Uzbekistan's you know, worst um, prison camp on um, political charges. And he has been he was in court every day I was there. And he's a Karakalpak himself and a Karakalpak speaker. Um, now, he himself has faced sort of questions about how close he is to the government, especially as he has a registered NGO where many independent civil society activists can't register NGOs. He and Peruzesh Shmatova were also keen to impress upon me that they hadn't really, they hadn't come across any problems in the trial that they did, or the letter of the law had been followed, etc. And you know, that's something, you know, that's their view.
2: So just to wrap up, there is, of course, the matter um very vexed matter of how it was that these uh, this violence actually was sparked in the first place. The the this whole thing began essentially because the Uzbek government it was a very top-down exercise was proposing to bring in a new constitution in which any references to the possibility of Karakal Pakistan being able to, having the privilege of someday having a referendum to um, declare independence and that was Included in the language of the constitution in the 1990s, that was going to be stripped out. And so that all that language was um, reinserted back into the constitution, into the proposed new constitution when the violence subsided. So, in a sense, out of all of this tragedy, you might say that the uh, Karakalpaks at least managed to uh, sort of you know, fight for this slender bit of uh, pretense to autonomy that they had before the events broke out but surveying the scene as it is now do you think that Karakalpak autonomy is uh, a sort of a going concern and do do you think it might have in the long term have been harmed by what happened in Karakopaksana last year
3: I personally think that, um, while the Caracal Pax stood up in, you know, no uncertain terms for, to protect their autonomy, I think it's been harmed, you know, by events and by the government's reaction to events as well. You know, I think while, you know, Mirzi Oyvan, uh, ordered the immediate dropping of those, uh, points affecting Caracal Pakistan from constitutional amendments as soon as the violence broke out. Um, so while those have been dropped, you know, I think we see what Caracal Pax, um, appear to, in, Interpret as encroachments on if not their sovereignty on their governance of themselves i mean we 've got a very glaring example in the appointment of a new chairman of the Karakalpak Council of Ministers um last month. Now Farhad Ermanov was appointed and he was born in Karakalpakstan, but he's an ethnic Uzbek. And I think a lot of Karakalpaks took a front um you know at that. Um, but I think it does send a message that, you know, that the authorities would rather have an Uzbek governing the Karakalpaks. And I saw one comment underneath a news report about that appointment um of uh, Farhad Ermanov saying that this was all about um, I quote the Uzbekification of the Sovereign Republic of Karakalpaq, Stan. And I think that probably sums up the sentiment.
2: Yeah, as, uh, as I was saying at the beginning, the, the verdict in the trial is uh, expected uh, anytime soon, if it hasn't already been passed by the time this podcast is published. But the expectation is that this will possibly be the first of more trials to come again. This is one of the many question marks there are over the whole the whole story since um, the government's not being very forthcoming on the details. So I fully expect to be having more conversations like this uh, in future. So, Joanna, thank you very much for um, being with me today, and uh, I look forward to speaking again soon in the future.
3: Thank you, and thanks to our listeners for tuning into Eurasia Chat.
0: So another story that I wanted to talk about, Alicia, is about McDonald's because McDonald's has left the Kazakhstani market in the beginning of January uh, citing supply chain disruptions basically because of Russia's invasion into Ukraine McDonald's had to stop its production because they were buying beef patties from Russia and they couldn't do it anymore because of the sanctions and they couldn't find alternative suppliers inside Kazakhstan and that's why they had to kind of leave Kazakhstan. And right now there is this kind of guess game, who is going to come instead of McDonald's, because they have removed this McDonald's brand uh, names, and now there is no name, but it is still operating. Some restaurants, former McDonald's restaurants, mm-hmm. and nobody knows who is this, the brand behind it. Some speculate that it might be Russian brand Vkusna itochka, the one that has replaced McDonald's in Russia itself. But um, yeah, there are a lot of discussions right now going on. Uh, some journalists actually found on social media, in Instagram, that in atrau in the western city of Kazakhstan, Vkusno Itochka brand has been uh, trying to hire staff for its restaurants, even though officially they said that they have no intention to enter Kazakhstani market. So we will see how this story develops. Well,
1: this is bad news for us Kyrgyzstanis because uh, McDonald's in Almaty was like a status thing for many Bishkek middle-class families. They would travel to Almaty just for the weekend to have a treat in McDonald's and then post their photos eating burgers uh, on their social networking websites. And and so uh, it was like a big thing for us because we don't have McDonald's in Bishkek but in Bishkek, it's a status thing. And generally in Central Asia, if you have a McDonald's, then you are, you're like a developed uh, city or developed country. If you don't, then you're still in the periphery. So we have a lot of fascination with Western culture generally. And McDonald's is a symbol of Western culture. That's why it's really popular in Kyrgyzstan. And in Central Asia, I think.
0: Yeah, a lot of uh, commentators in Kazakhstan actually cited that McDonald's has a very high standard for its um, ingredients. And given that they were unable to find alternatives in Kazakhstan, it will hit very badly Kazakhstan's investment climate. Maybe they're right, maybe not. The time will show. For me personally, I've never tried McDonald's in Kazakhstan, like the burgers themselves. Only milkshake, but I did try McDonald's when I was in the US. And after that experience, I never ever wanted to try McDonald's because it was a traumatic experience for me. It was not a tasty burger at all. And like, I don't want to eat anything from McDonald's right now after that. I think that there are lots of other brands in Central Asia, anyways, apart from McDonald's, there are, I don't know, KFC, Hardee's. And I, I remember a few years ago, some of these burger brands actually tried to localize the, t- the taste and they made burgers with horse meat in Kazakhstan. So oh this my was God. tasty.
1: <laughs> this has been Eurasia Chat Podcast with your hosts Alisher and Igeri. Tune in to our next episodes on Eurasianet or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and see you next time.
0: Bye.